Greetings, everyone, and welcome to our podcast series on legal issues in the post-COVID world. My name is Gil Porter, a partner at Haynes & Boone and host of our ongoing series of podcasts covering the post-COVID legal landscape. Today is October 2 as we end our two-month summer hiatus. We're two weeks into the autumn season, daylight's becoming an increasingly precious resource for those of us north of the equator anyways. Shelter-in-place rules in the U.S., while still actively in place in select areas, are mostly being relaxed, with increasing interest from employers and employees alike in reopening our offices and businesses. Which takes us to our topic of today, workplace safety in the post-COVID world. Today, we will cover enforcement trends regarding alleged COVID-19 hazards in the workplace. We have two guest panelists today, Minnie Kapoor, one of our litigation attorneys and a key member of the Ocean Workplace Disasters Practice at Haynes & Boone, and Matt Defeback, a partner in our Haynes & Boone, Houston, and Orange County offices and chair of that practice group. We're also joined by Nathan Koppel, our head of media relations, who will continue his role as moderator for this series. I'll turn this over to Nathan in a moment after I cover a few additional points of note. First, I don't want you to think we were simply basking in the sun during our break. We've been setting up some new content for our friends and clients. First is that we have a new Media Minutes, HB Media Minute podcast, which is brought to you courtesy of our media law practice group. This will be available starting perhaps as soon as you hear this on on our website and on all major podcast sites. Second, response to our China webinar program has been so great that we've now opened a China updates page on our website with regular alerts, webinars, and podcasts. If this is an area of interest, please check it out. And third, our labor and employment law practice group has adapted their regular in-person series of programs to a four-part webinar series this fall. The first webinar, an OSHA update featuring our two panelists today, was held on September 23 and will be available on our website shortly. Three more topics are scheduled through December. You can find these and sign up on our website. And there's more to come, so stay tuned. Finally, our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only, is not intended to be legal advice, and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. By their very nature, the topics we discuss in these podcasts will be fast-moving and subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. That's it for now. I'll talk to you later. Let me turn it over to Nathan. Gil, many thanks. And Matt, many welcome aboard today. Uh, We're now... I guess about seven months into the pandemic, and I would imagine the key workplace risk for most employers this year still remains COVID-19. With that in mind, Matt, I'm going to start with you and ask you to please provide a quick primer, if you will, about the role that the Occupational Safety and Health Administration plays in policing workplace safety, and in particular, what standards they impose on employers in regards to COVID-19 risks. You bet, Nathan. And when it comes to COVID-19 and workplace safety, it's definitely OSHA, OSHA, and more OSHA. So when we talk about that on the sort of federal side of it, the agency expects through its various laws and regulations that employers, all private sector and many public sector employers are going to provide a safe workplace to their employees. And in regards to COVID-19, this really comes under 
what is referred to as OSHA's general duty clause, a statutory provision that says if there's a hazard that could create a safety issue, uh, potential for serious injury or death, that an employer has an obligation to protect its employees. And that's the principal means in which the federal government enforces workplace safety in regards to COVID. Now, on the state side, and this is where it gets interesting because we have 22 state programs where the states alone govern workplace safety, and there you have a patchwork Some states have enacted specific emergency rules for COVID, such as Virginia. There's one coming in Oregon, another in California. And then you also have different regulations in some of these state programs, all of it serving under this general principle that when workers come into the workplace, whether they're essential workers that must be at a manufacturing facility, healthcare workers that must be in a hospital, or if they're white collar workers who are starting to come back into the workplace, how does the employer? ensure that they're protected from COVID-19. That's the real central issue that we've been dealing with now for months and will continue to deal with. A couple of questions, Matt. First, how does OSHA go about ensuring that employers are living up to their their duty to protect employees? And, And then I guess the related question would be how aggressively has the federal government and states been policing these these standards? Absolutely. Yeah. On the enforcement side of it, basically, there are really two things that are happening. One, there is a tremendous volume of complaints where employees are calling the agency and asking the agency to investigate allegations that the employer is not doing enough in terms of safety controls, social distancing, mask policies, etc. Then also the agency on its own um, when it receives certain information, um, if there's been a fatality potentially related to COVID-19 or hospitalizations, the agency then will initiate its own inspection. And so when it, when it comes to that, you'll see a, a real dichotomy in terms of what's happening in enforcement. At, at the federal side, there has been about a thousand inspections regarding COVID-19 that have been open to date, and those are mainly on the worker fatality or hospitalization side. And the state programs, those 22 state programs, have opened almost 2,700 cases, so significantly more. And those, the majority are based on complaints coming in. So we're seeing a a real difference in terms of variety of of the level of enforcement at the federal side versus the state, state side. And probably anyone listening to this has heard some of that criticism as to federal OSHA, um, that there's been sort of an outcry that the agency hasn't done enough in enforcement. And what we see the state programs doing is sort of picking up that slack. Does some of this involve inspections in person by by, uh, investigators? Yeah, absolutely. And, and and that creates interesting issues, right? Because the, the agency itself, um, the federal agency, issued um, guidance that at the very beginning of the, uh, the pandemic really noted that its inspectors were only going to go into very high hazard um, industries, primarily healthcare, partly to protect the inspectors um, and, and sort of limit their on the, you know, boots on the ground inspection activity. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Minnie, I'm going to turn it over to you. Matt did a great job of, of setting the stage for the, the level of enforcement activity by the by the federal government in various states. I'm curious about the civil side of, of the ledger. What kinds of, of civil complaints have employers faced related to COVID-19 hazards? Sure, Nathan. Um, 
as you said, while working uh, on addressing workplace safety and OSHA compliance, um, it's 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 a good idea to keep an eye out on what's happening on the civil suit side of in the COVID world. So. Um, just to kind of give you a sense of where, uh, you know, what the civil suit picture is, there have been the lawsuits that have been filed so far are actually in the thousands. And this started uh, late March, early April. Most lawsuits are still kind of, you can say, in their early stages. So it remains to be seen how the courts are going to address the claims that are coming coming to them. Uh, and also, it's important to note that the lawsuits are happening both on the on the in federal courts as well as state courts. Um, just to give you a flavor of, you know, the common types of claims that have been brought by um, claimants or, or employees or other other plaintiffs, um, they span a multiple types of claims. Obviously, there are employees uh, bringing suits against employers, uh, complaining about unsafe conditions in the workplace, such as lack of uh, personal protective equipment, exposure to COVID-19 or uh, personal injury type of claims. Then there are also lawsuits related to unlawful termination, um, leave related under both federal and state law. So those are kind of the employment, employee related uh, lawsuits. But then there are several other categories uh, that businesses would be good. It would be good for businesses to be kind of be aware of. Uh, there's a large number of suits uh on the insurance-related uh, claims where policyholders are seeking business interruption coverage from their insurers for uh, financial losses due to you know, mandated closures. Uh, there's also a significant number of lawsuits that uh, fall under the category of uh, contractual or consumer disputes. For example, failure to refund for a prepaid event or travel, uh, construction-related uh, you know, in the supply chain uh, for construction industry, a product liability-related claims, as well as price gouging. And then one more category I would mention is uh, civil rights claims where, uh, you know, claimants are bringing suits against the government for business closures, stay-at-home orders, ban of um, group gatherings. So those are um, some of the types of different suits that have uh, been brought uh, to course. There are several other categories that I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not mentioning here, but, but they span a lot of different types of claims. So from the employer's perspective, it, it's good to be aware of what kind of suits are being brought. And, you know, there are proactive approaches that employers can take to minimize liability for this, this type of claims. I'm building on that, I want to ask Matt about one particular species of matter, which I, which I understand poses particular risks or uh, potential risks to employers, and, those, and that is whistleblower complaints. Matt, how do those differ from the standard COVID-19 type complaint? Yeah, good, good question. The, the whistleblower issue is different in the sense that let's talk about, you know, I referenced earlier, a lot of employees are simply calling up the agency to complain about um, workplace conditions. And, and as we said, there's 
thousands of those. Um, the whistleblower issue is distinct in that it's not simply an employee who's calling up to alert the agency that they feel that the workplace that he or she is working at is unsafe. But this is where somebody has felt that they have suffered some form of adverse employment action and now have, have felt that they've been damaged by that and are initiating a formal, what we call a Section 11C uh, complaint that could initially be a lawsuit brought by the Department of Labor. And so and you're really seeing sort of an issue where someone has said, I was you know, fired and, and I felt that my termination was because I raised my hand to complain about a safety issue. So those are distinct and different, and they operate under a different structure. You know, there is a group of assigned investigators within the federal government that that's all they do is handle these sort of complaints where the employee is saying that there was an issue, I complained about it, it's a safety issue, and then I've been terminated or suffered some other adverse employment action. Minnie, I want to ask you about uh, turn to the great state of California, which I, which mind I understand has a particularly robust uh, enforcement regime for these kinds of issues. What kinds of of feedback are you getting from clients about the the regulatory issues they're facing in California? Yeah, that's a really good question. It has been challenging for um, employers in California to keep up with. Um, OSHA standards or, or guidance right now, especially with regard to uh, rep- recording and reporting um, COVID-19 cases in the workplace. We've, we've got a, a fair number of questions from clients on uh, that point, uh, especially, I think, in light of the the changing or constantly evolving guidance on that. So um, I want to just say a few words on that. I think it's important to for employers to... Um, to realize or understand that you do not need a positive COVID-19 test or diagnosis uh, for a COVID-19 case to be eligible or you trigger your obligations for recording or reporting. Uh, so that's, that's, that's I think, one uh, issue that most employers sometimes think that you need to have a positive test. You do not need to have a positive test. Your recording and reporting obligations uh are triggered in the can be triggered in the absence of um, of a positive test. So, what are those other conditions that would trigger if you don't have a positive test? Um, if you talk about recording, uh, determining that the case is work related is one of the situations where uh, where where even if you do not have a positive test, uh, your recording obligation is triggered. So the, how do you determine that something is work-related? The division has uh, laid out, you know, examples of situations where uh, the employer can presume that uh, – the COVID case in the workplace is work-related. For example, if there's a situation where the employee interacted with other people known to be infected with coronavirus or working in the same area or sharing tools, materials, or other uh, gadgets with, with infected individuals, if you have those situations, then you can presume that the case is work-related and your uh and your recording obligation is triggered. 
And if you don't have such situations, division lays out, you know, additional things that employers can investigate to figure out if a if a case is work related. And again, uh, it's it's not always black and white. Even if you have answers to all the questions that division wants wants you to ask. And uh, so, in those situations, when you're on the fence, is it work related or it's not work related? It's good to err on the side of, you know it being work-related uh, and so and, and recorded. You may want to document elsewhere that we were not able to, um, based on our investigation, uh, determine for, for, for a fact that this, this case was work-related, but out of abundance of caution, we are recording it. Uh, so you've kind of you know, kind of fulfilled your obligation of all the things that the division wants you to do on the recording criteria. Uh, on the reporting stuff, um, you know, it's important to realize that you need to report uh, serious COVID cases, not only that are work-related, but any cases that occur at work. In other words, if the infection or exposure to the virus happened outside of work, but the employee starts showing symptoms or is sick uh, at work, uh, that makes it reportable um, if it is a serious serious uh, case. Uh, so it's important to realize it's not just work-related for reporting. It's also uh uh, symptoms when employees have symptoms at work, it may be uh, it may be required to report those cases. Um, so that that's one of the uh, recording reporting uh, situation is one of the issues that uh, a lot of our clients have um, found challenging, and you know we get questions on that fairly frequently. The other thing before I um, stop on this point is I do want to mention that uh, most of our listeners might be aware, uh, effective January 1, 2021, there's going to be a new law in effect for California employers, more obligations on on. Um, on the COVID, uh, in the COVID world, uh, what they're required to do, among other things, is to communicate to employees and contractors in writing within one business day of receiving notice of a potential exposure of COVID-19 at work. Uh, And they are also required to report outbreaks of COVID in the workplace to the local health agencies. And the law actually has several other obligations that employers are required to comply with. And again, it becomes effective January 2021 uh, and is expected to stay in effect for two years from that date. So it'll be good for employers to go back and, uh, you know, work with their counsel to make sure that they are ready for um, implementing the requirements under that new law. So um, these are some of the challenges that California employers are facing uh, with respect to covid 19 compliance and you know obviously there are others but i'll, I'll stop there well thank you many thanks and thank you for flagging that law it sounds like an important one many you had mentioned that there are some proactive steps that employers can take to try to insulate themselves from all the sorts of claims and, and scrutiny that we've talked about can you outline what some of those steps are absolutely that's a really good question nathan because as i said earlier um 
we would want to keep an eye out on what's going on on the civil side because there might be things that we can do now today to to minimize liability. So a proactive approach to defense is the best strategy in my mind. Um, so how do we take that proactive approach? An obvious thing is to make sure that in your workplace, you are implementing and enforcing uh, the applicable federal, state, and local guidance for minimizing potential exposure to COVID-19 in the workplace. Um, and then, you know, that that's kind of an obvious thing that to most employers. But it's important to also think about whether there are situations where some of these guidelines or, or you know, uh uh, other issues that the government is thinking that you should implement at your workplace are not really feasible. What do you do then? Um, so it's in those situations, it's important to explore, um, implement and enforce alternative means of, uh, you know, protection in your workplace so that you are able to sh- say that, if you get sued that, yeah, we were not able to follow this specific guideline, but guess what we did? We tried to figure out, are there other means that we could we could have implemented in our workplace where uh, our employees are equally protected and third parties entering our premises are also equally protected? So it's good to, very important, I think, to explore alternative methods that you might want to implement in place of the specific guidance if that's not something that's feasible for you. And then it's important to, of course, document what's what you're doing. You know, you have you you had to go to an alternative means of protection and and here's here's the method that you kind of took to analyze that issue and how you went about uh, you know implementing that alternative control is is an important part of being able to defend uh, if there is a lawsuit uh, then uh, you know obviously uh, again I think it's fairly obvious you would you would want to have a written plan to handle uh, covid 19 cases if there is one in your workplace so that you know at the at the last moment you find out somebody might be infected and there isn't like a written procedure, what employees are supposed to do at that point. So it's important to have a documented plan of um, action if there is a case in your workplace. And then uh, the other thing I want to mention is, you know, if you are, if your workplace is such that you have third parties visiting your workplace, for example, customers, clients, contractors, um, you need to require them to uh, follow your COVID-19 safety rules that you have implemented in your workplace. Um, and then, because then you, you have, if, if, if those employees or, or those third parties already know the rules and they fail to follow the rules at the back end, you'll be able to argue that, you know, we had the rule, this person failed to follow the rules and that's why he, his, that's, there is, that's why his injury uh, occurred. So you have some kind of an out or an, a potential argument that you can make. Uh, if there is a lawsuit. And then it's also important, I think, to to notify not only employees, but also third parties that the COVID safety rules in the workplace are meant to minimize uh, potential exposure to the to the virus as per the federal and state and local guidance. But they're not a guarantee that, you know, if you follow these rules, you you will not have an, an infection with the virus or exposure to the virus. So it's important to, to, to give that notification to your employees and also third parties so that, again, uh, you, get, you have a potential argument that the claimant, uh, you know, entered the premises or did a certain task with full assumption of risk uh, of exposure. 
Um, and then, you know, uh, it, it, there's there's several other things, you know, employers can can do on the on the proactive approach kind of um, scenario. But these are kind of some of the things that are I, I feel fairly easy to do and uh, should be implemented in a workplace. Really, really good advice. Thank you so much, Minnie. Um, Matt, I'm going to end by by asking you a question about the election. We're, of course, in the throes of election season now in the, in, in the U.S. And curious if there's a change in administration, uh, what kind of impact might might that have on OSHA enforcement? Yeah, it's. Um, I, th- I think we're all hopeful to see the year 2021, <laughs> and if we uh, if if we see it with a change in a, an election, um, change through the election of the, of the party, then I think that could be very significant. And that's in the sense that because there's been so much criticism of the federal agency from the Democratic Party of not doing enough, that you might see the push to actually pass a COVID-19 temporary standard, which is you know we referred to has happened actually at the state level in states like Virginia. Uh, and I think number two, that you would see greater enforcement. And um, and that's just consistent with any time there's a change in party with the agency, um, you will see typically much greater enforcement activity, more enforcement uh, initiatives. And so I think if we're you know dealing with the second wave of, of COVID-19, um, if we're still dealing with workplace safety issues with COVID-19, it would not surprise me that we would see a very different tone from the agency uh, under a Democratic president. Well, thanks, Madam. I'm, I'm like you. I'm ready to fast forward to 2021. Uh, thank you for joining, Minnie. Much appreciated. Gil, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you, Matt and Minnie. And of course, thank you, Nathan. And a reminder that there is a webinar that goes into this in a bit more detail that will be available on our website. So please, if you're more interested, take a look. And thank you to our listeners for joining our COVID-19 podcast series. Our podcast series is moving to a monthly format going forward, so please stay tuned and tuned in. Please let us also know if you have any suggestions for further podcast topics. And of course, please remember to access the wealth of materials, written alerts, summaries, webinars, and podcasts that are available on our website at hainesboon.com. That's H-A-Y-N-E-S-B-O-O-N-E.com. Take care all and have a great October and stay safe.